0: When Hurricane Ida made landfall in New York, there was this one image I just couldn't get out of my head. It was video of a delivery guy. He is trudging slowly through waist-high water, plastic takeout bag slung over his handlebars. Some people saw this guy as stoic, out there doing his job, no matter what. Other people saw him as tragic. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted out, Please do not be the person who orders delivery during a flash flood. If it's too dangerous for you, it's too dangerous for them. But the delivery workers themselves, they kind of shrugged their shoulders.
1: Yeah, they were, I mean, they were not surprised. Most of them worked during Ida for a bit.
0: Josh Jezza spent the summer shadowing New York's delivery men. He was just about to publish a big piece about them when the storm hit. His article was accompanied by its own Ida image, a delivery guy ringing a doorbell on a handsome stoop, rain pouring down. He is there to deliver a single ice cream.
1: People called it the worst night ever, uh, just in terms of damage to bikes, the difficulty, the danger, and the lack of uh, financial reward. Um, But I don't think anyone was surprised that people were out.
0: I wonder if you were ever able to, like, get out on a bike with these workers or whether that was just too hard because they go so fast and they're so busy all the time.
1: Yeah, I initially wanted to, uh, but I didn't end up doing it. They go extremely fast. Uh, A lot of them, you know, when I would ask, just said, you'll just slow me down. Um, (laughs) So
0: leave this to the big boys. Yeah. New York's delivery workers didn't always move so fast. And they weren't always so vulnerable to the elements. But apps like Seamless and Grubhub have supercharged this gig. An electric bike that can go 30 miles an hour is a prerequisite of the job at this point. That's so you can deliver just about anywhere. And it turns out when your boss is an app, an event like a once-in-a-hundred-years flash flood, it ups the stakes.
1: The worker I spoke to, one of them who was out in Ida... He felt he had to because his ratings had fallen uh, on the app he worked for.
0: His ratings had fallen. So it's like he was he wasn't moving as fast or something. So he was bumped down.
1: Yeah. So if your ratings fall, you end up working in undesirable places like New Jersey uh, during bad times or not working at all. So his, his ratings were dropping. Ida, he saw Ida as an opportunity. He went out, went through water, up to his knees, wrecked his bike. Had to pay 150 bucks to get it repaired, which wiped out his earnings for that night uh, and ended up getting bumped from the schedule anyway.
0: I'm gonna give you another way to look at those pictures of delivery guys caught in the torrential rain, take out containers strapped to their backs. What if these images don't show a hero or a victim, but instead show an opportunity? An opportunity to ask, is this really how we're getting our food these days?
1: Ultimately, when you see something like that, it's it's a policy failure. Uh, The fact that workers can't take time off, that they have to work in dangerous situations, is not necessarily on the consumer or, or will need larger changes to fix.
0: Today on the show, giving a bigger tip is not going to fix what's ailing tens of thousands of New York delivery people. So, what will? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Some people have called New York's delivery workers the invisible 65,000. That's right. There are 65,000 of them. And while people who deliver food used to work for restaurants, now most of them are gig workers. So instead of dropping off a pizza or some mushu a few blocks away, they're speeding 60 blocks uptown to drop off some ice cream or french fries. Instead of coming back to a home base where they can probably score a free meal, they are scavenging around the city for a place to pee. Josh says, the workers he spoke with, they actually like their freedom. And at least at first, working for an app paid better than working for a restaurant. But delivery people, they're also working without a net, contracting for apps like Grubhub and DoorDash. Sometimes they work for a bunch of these apps at once, trying to game the system.
1: Each one is a little different and has its own little, you know, rewards and penalties. You know, you Uber Eats and DoorDash, you have more freedom to pick and choose orders. Uber Eats, you have more, it doesn't punish you for not accepting orders. DoorDash, it sort of does. It'll like, you, you lose what they call top Dasher status and get, get uh, getting sort of, top pick of, of good deliveries. There's various sorts of, I mean, it's a game. It feels like gambling. You never sort of know what kind of tip you're going to get, where you're going to go, how much you're going to make.
0: So if I wanted to become a delivery worker, like, how would I go about it? Like, what's a day like? How does it work?
1: Well, the first thing you're going to need is a electric bike. These are these bikes
0: it, with motors on them. Yeah,
1: yeah. The the bike that most workers in in New York use it's called an Arrow and it's just a heavy duty mountain bike with a battery on the back as a throttle that goes up to a bit under thirty miles an hour, uh, and that's what they all use. It's the only way. Every worker said it's the only way you can do enough deliveries for long enough to make a living at the job. So once you get that, which is quite expensive, it's eighteen hundred bucks, you know twenty five hundred after you get second battery and all the other stuff you need. Um, then you sign up for the apps.
0: How much did these jobs pay initially and how much do they pay now?
1: They paid pretty well. You would hear stories in the in the you know mid-2010s about about workers who are making twenty, thirty an hour or something like that, like like quite well. Now, um, according to a recent study by the Workers' Justice Project and Cornell, uh when you factor in expenses, base pay is seven eighty seven an hour on average. With tips, it's twelve forty, so below legal minimum wage standards in, in New York.
0: And the apps will say, "Oh, the people are making 25 dollars an hour." Like thirty three is in New York City, but do the workers just say that doesn't account for everything else we have to pay
1: for? I mean, they laugh when they hear that number because <laughs> that huh. that that number, uh, even if you accounted for expenses, is is Extremely high, according to them, and according to the the receipts that I've seen, um, I'm not really sure how how they get that number. Uh, and one thing to remember is that it only counts time when they're when they're literally on a delivery, so no no waiting time, none of that. And then then when you factor in expenses, uh, it's it's much much lower.
0: I think part of what's interesting about your reporting is you really like articulate this whole world that I didn't know existed. Like all of these garages and repair shops and places around the city that I wouldn't know about because I'm not a delivery worker. So can you tell me a little bit about this other world that's sort of developed around the apps and the workers because there's been such a sudden influx of them?
1: Yeah. So the core thing to remember about the apps is that when workers switched from restaurants to apps, they had no more shelter. They had no more access to restrooms. They had nowhere to store their bikes. They lost all these things that you wouldn't even really have thought of as perks of being a delivery person, but where they were, Uh, there were things that the restaurant had provided. Um, And so they had to build their own infrastructure. And so one, one response was to cut deals with parking garage lot managers and create bike storage space. Um, And some, you know, it becomes sort of a a break room. They set up a table to where they can hang out and eat lunch between the lunch and dinner lull.
0: So Um, it was like a parking spot, but now it's like an office space.
1: Yeah. So the one one I spent a lot of time in, it was just sort of this corner of the garage that wasn't really good for anything. You couldn't really fit a car in there. Um, But it had become a break room. They stored, uh, must have been dozens of bikes. They charged batteries there. They, they had installed shelving to, uh, to charge all their batteries. They eat lunch.
0: And the workers came up with this themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's interesting because I'm tempted to hear about this and think about it as innovative. And it is innovative. There's no doubt about that. But I wonder if you also see that in addition to this impressiveness, it also shows how this infrastructure is very rickety.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it is innovative and impre- impressive and resilient and kind of inspiring that they've come together as a community to support each other. But they've had to do that because they've been failed by every other institution. You know, the the apps are not concerned with them. They're contractors, the restaurants are concerned with them because they work for the apps the city just has ignored them It's changing a little bit now with the after the pandemic but but for years they were just sort of treated as a, as a nuisance and so they really had to develop this system uh because they were no one else was looking out for them uh, and it is it's expensive it, it externalizes a lot of costs of delivery onto the workers you know they have to pay for a garage, which is 100 120 bucks a month. They have to maintain their bike. They have to pay for all this, like, cold weather gear and, and their delivery bags. It really, it comes with a cost.
0: And the cost here, it's not just monetary. If you watch these workers going from point A to point B, they're going fast. They're zipping between cars, going the wrong way down streets, all in the name of delivering your order on time. It's dangerous. During the pandemic, just as so many people were praising them as essential workers, here in New York, delivery workers started getting attacked, robbed for those e-bikes that are so important to getting their jobs done. The workers have set up an informal infrastructure to help keep each other safe. They have Facebook and WhatsApp groups to track down stolen bikes. You tell the story of this one delivery guy, Nicolas, who walks out from, I think, delivering some food and realizes, oh, my God, my my bike's been stolen. And he goes through this whole saga, and he ends up intersecting with the folks behind this Facebook group. Can you just tell that story? Because it's so dramatic. They they try to involve the police, but that doesn't seem to work. And so they're really on their own.
1: Yeah, Nicholas tried repeatedly to involve the police, you know, the first time. So uh, his bike is stolen. His brother is in one of these WhatsApp groups and and posts a photo of it. And really remarkably, an hour or so later, someone spots it in the Bronx. Uh, They tail the guy who's wheeling the bike down the sidewalk. They film him as he carries it to an apartment building. And And this
0: is like a random person. It's not someone they necessarily know that well. It's just that they feel responsible as another delivery person.
1: Yeah, he has no idea. He doesn't know who filmed it. Um, It's just that... They, you know, they're all delivery people. They all ride bikes. They all live in fear of having a bike stolen. And so they are always on the lookout for something suspicious. Um, so Nicholas goes up there, goes to the building. Uh, five other workers from the WhatsApp group have all sort of joined him uh, in front of the building. And he just calls 911 repeatedly and is told a car is gonna come, it doesn't come. They all go home. The next day, he visits the precinct in either building. They say to go to a precinct in Manhattan where it was stolen. He does that. He gets some paperwork, he's told to go back to the Bronx. He goes back to the Bronx precinct. They say they'll send someone. They don't send someone. So he just sort of runs around the city trying to get help from the police, and, and nothing happens. But then several days later, someone else in the group has a bike stolen. It has a GPS, and it shows it to be in the same building that Nicholas's bike is in. And so a much larger group gathers. Uh, they again try the police several times. They go back to the Bronx Precinct several times. Can't get any help. Uh, and so they decide to hold a stakeout. Um, I mean, it's quite remarkable, the detective work they did. They got surveillance footage. Uh, he has the GPS signal. He has a remote alarm that he triggered on his bike so they can hear it behind the door. So they know they know it's there. And they know who took it. Um, And so they all wait uh, for hours outside until the guy comes down. how many
0: people is this? This is like 10 people, 20 people?
1: Like 15, about. Uh Um, uh, And then he comes down, and they they surround him and say, you know, we know you took the bikes. We have you on video. Please give them back. Uh, We don't want trouble. And the guy eventually agrees, um, and... They all run upstairs after, after a bit of a confrontation, but are given the bikes back.
0: Is that a success story?
1: It is and it isn't. I mean, it's dangerous. It worked out well in that case, but it very well might not have. Um, I think a success story would have been at some point during their many attempts, the police get involved and help, uh, help get the bikes back.
0: So you're really drawing a pretty pointed picture of police abdicating their responsibility here. You must have also talked to the apps at some point and kind of laid out your reporting. You know, here's what I'm hearing from workers on the ground. I'm wondering how they responded to you.
1: Yeah, they I mean, the, the policing stuff, I think they rightly say is a city issue, Um that that's their view uh on it um the the other issues i mean they insist they pay workers well they say that they're contractors that they're that because they have a lot of freedom and flexibility doordash in particular always stresses that their workers are are part-time tend to be part-time it's a side gig uh and that's uh, some of that might be more true elsewhere than it is in New York. In New York, it's overwhelmingly a full-time job. Um, I, I think they they don't acknowledge the the work that workers are doing just to be able to do the job. Um, and I think they're very resistant to, to doing that.
0: Are the workers thinking of forming a union? Could they even do that?
1: Well, they can't do that. Because they're contractors, and, and due to the quirks of U.S. labor law, they're not—they're not allowed to. Uh, that may change. Um, you know, the, the PRO Act has a provision um, that would allow contractors to, to unionize.
0: That's a bill that's uh, been bumping around Congress.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens with that, but it's something people are talking about. Uh, it's you know, in lieu of that, they've had to organize in this sort of grassroots way that they've been doing, but they, you know, don't have the ability to bargain collectively with the apps.
0: I I wonder how you think about blame in this story, because there are so many different players in this and so many different people with different motivations. Like there's the consumer, there's the app, there's the restaurant, there's the delivery worker. And so in some ways having that many people involved, not making it like a one-to-one transaction between you and a local restaurant, I feel like that that spreads out the blame and it spreads out like where you can get accountability. You know what I mean? Like how how do you think about who to hold responsible for the situation the workers are in?
1: Absolutely. I think I think part of the reason that they are in the situation they're they're in is because as things currently work, no one is really responsible for them. Uh, And I think that means there's a lot of blame to go around. I think consumers need to be more aware of the labor behind their actions. um, You know, some of which is enabled by just things like software interface design, where it doesn't really make a point of showing you how far away something is you're ordering. Um, I think the city uh, and state and, and government in general shares a lot of the blame for letting these companies grow for so long unregulated without really analyzing how they've changed work and how some of those changes could have really negative impacts on workers.
0: When we come back, how the delivery workers' informal infrastructure could lead to more formal
2: Com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: While contract delivery workers can't necessarily form a union, they can advocate for themselves through protests and rallies. They held one just this week at New York City Hall. What's beautiful about this is that from nothing in over a year, and in just over a year, one of the largest labor movements of its kind has brought the city to its knees to ensure that we actually respond with action. They're hoping representatives pass a package of bills providing rudimentary protections. Stuff like being able to set a maximum trip distance or requiring restaurants to let workers use the bathrooms. Or making sure the apps give workers those insulated food delivery bags. Right now, the workers have to buy their own.
1: They see it as a start. Um, They they want the higher pay in particular, the uh, restroom access. Those are all helpful. Um, But yeah, the, the, the core issue is that they are contractors without benefits in a Dangerous and precarious industry, and that isn't really going to be addressed by these bills. And they know that. I think the the workers I've spoken to, especially the 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 Luristas, uh, see this as a as a beginning. There's a lot more that they're they're pushing for.
0: It was interesting to me that you spent a lot of time with very particular communities, indigenous folks, and folks from Mexico and Guatemala. But then I looked at a recent report that that said, I think only 30 percent of the delivery workers in New York City identified as Latinx. And it just made me think there are so many more people to get organized (laughs) with with these workers, you know, and and this particular group may be able to reach out to each other because they share a language and they share a culture. And um, it might be easier to get them involved in their Facebook and WhatsApp groups, but reaching out. To all of the app workers is a challenge.
1: Absolutely. So there's a, like a large South Asian population, West African, Chinese. Uh, you know, one study I saw said there are 25 first languages among among New York delivery workers. At one rally I was, I was at, I, uh, there were a lot of Bangladeshi workers. There were uh, some West African workers. It, it seems to, everyone's experiencing, everyone rides these bikes, everyone's experiencing the thefts. And so it was sort of a, an optimal flashpoint. It, it has really galvanized everyone. And I think uh, I think organizing the larger delivery community for political activism will be difficult because it's so dispersed among different nationalities and languages, but uh, it's something that the activists are working on.
0: I wonder when the workers you spoke with noticed that the pandemic was reshaping the work they did. And how they noticed that?
1: It's really, it was really interesting to me how little the pandemic came up in our conversations. Like they, they, they knew they were working through the pandemic and that it was dangerous, and a lot of people got sick. The main thing that they talked about was, I mean, other than the thefts, which they associated with the pandemic and and sort of the streets being empty, um, but was the longer distances. And they said every restaurant. Expanded its delivery radius, um, and so that was their big—that was their big complaint about the pandemic. I think, at the same time, they were very aware of all the rhetoric around being heroes. You know, the apps were saying it, the city was saying it, and they did not feel treated like heroes. Uh, you know, for years they've been kind of persecuted by the police. Who, when e-bikes were illegal. Um, restaurants were not letting them use their restrooms, so the job only, had only become more difficult at the same time everyone was talking about these heroic essential workers who are feeding the city. And I think that was pretty galling for them. And they started to think about what it would mean to be, to be treated in a way that reflected that rhetoric.
0: Yeah. Do you think they'd be organizing in the way they are now if the pandemic hadn't happened?
1: I don't think so. Um... It's interesting. I think the pandemic forced them to come together. That I think the apps forced them to come together in some ways, because no, no longer being sort of split between restaurants, they had to you know congregate in parking garages and things like that. But I think that all just accelerated in the pandemic. More people were using those sorts of spaces. They were the only people on the street. And so there was a sense of community and solidarity around it. And so I think without the pandemic and sort of all those ensuing uh, ensuing problems that that came out of it, I don't think that they would be organizing like this.
0: Some people might hear our conversation and think, this is just a New York thing. Like, I live in California. I live in Chicago. I live somewhere else. And this doesn't impact me. And I wonder what you'd say to someone who's thinking that
1: I think two things I think the first the, these companies are everywhere you know especially during the pandemic they've expanded into every city into the suburbs. it's really uh, a growing business and you know they might not be on e-bikes but a lot of the same issues apply cars and maintenance, things like that, uh, costs that get externalized to, to workers. Uh, I think there's a general a general push towards you know, fast and and unlimited delivery wherever you are. That it's something you can click a button and and not really think about how it gets to you, like like Amazon. Um, and so I think wherever you see that, you're going to see kind of an underworld of of improvisation and and costs uh, that workers will have to bear. I think the second thing is that. This type of work I think has implications for, for all workers. I think these companies have been very effective in organizing large workforces uh, quite efficiently. And I think we are seeing similar forms of precarious labor in, in other industries. And so I think that to, no matter where you were, where you are or what, what your job is, um, it is helpful to see this as a possible, a possible form the future of, of work could take.
0: Josh Jezza, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Josh Jezza is the investigations editor at The Verge. Go check out his piece, Revolt of the Delivery Worker. And that, that is our show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Davis Land, Carmel Del Shad, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Be sure to stay tuned to this feed tomorrow for What Next TBD, hosted by Lizzie O'Leary. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you on Monday.